Good morning. Today's passage is Revelation 3, 14 through 22. You can find it in the Bible you brought with you on your phone or in the Pew Bible. And in the Pew Bible, it is on page 1030. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning, all. Hope you are doing well this second Sunday of Advent. As I mentioned last week, we're nearing the end of our two-year sermon series. If you've been at Calvary for uh, much of the past year or two, you know that. Our sermon series, All Things New, the story of the Bible and the healing of the world. And so, insofar as we are nearing the end of our sermon series, which takes place at the end of the Bible... Uh, We are focusing our attention this Advent in the book of Revelation on the Lord's second Advent, which takes place at the end of the age and the end of the Bible story. So last week, we looked in our first Sunday of Advent at chapter 1 in Revelation and saw Christ's cosmic dominion, his sacrificial love, the dominion that he shares together with the church. This Uh, Sunday, the second Sunday of Advent, we continue and look at another aspect, we might say, of Jesus's dominion, his personal dominion of intimate and tender love. So we're focusing our attention on Revelation 3, 14 through 22, which Amy already read for us, and Jesus's message to the church at Laodicea. If you've read chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, you know that Jesus has seven messages to seven churches. And the messages are a mix of encouragement for some of the churches, rebuke for others, exhortation, promises of reward. And no doubt when the churches received uh, these messages as they were scattered throughout Asia Minor, they received them uh, as particular to their context. Uh, But the church has long read these seven messages to the seven churches as Christ's ongoing word to the church universal scattered throughout the world. 
And so we're focusing our attention on Christ's message to the church, the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea, the church that was lukewarm. Now, I could have focused my attention on any of the seven past or any of the seven uh, churches, and I didn't pick Laodicea because I think that we are uh, lukewarm. That's not why I picked uh, Laodicea. So you can put your heart at rest there as to what your pastor thinks of you this morning. It's not that I worry that we're lukewarm, but I, what I noticed and was drawn to in Jesus' message to the church at Laodicea was this unique message of love. And I want to focus in on that because lately I've been all about love, as many of you know. And so uh, on to our text here then and the lukewarm church of Laodicea. And we're going to move pretty quickly through the early verses to get to verse uh, 20, which is where I want to spend the majority of our time, all right? So in verses 15 and 16, Jesus tells the church at Laodicea that they're neither hot nor cold, that they are lukewarm. And uh, that's not a ringing endorsement of any uh, local church. We don't want to be lukewarm. And Jesus says, because the church is lukewarm, Jesus is going to spit them out of his mouth. And again, that's not something that you want said of you, that Jesus is going to spit you out of his mouth. And the primary problem of the Laodiceans was that they were not aware of their deep spiritual needs. They had all sorts of earthly material comforts. And thus, they wrongly inferred that because they didn't have any material needs, they must not have any spiritual needs. But how wrong they were, because in verse 17, Jesus says, you think that you're rich, but actually you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So their self-assessment, their self-judgment about what they were was very far from the truth, very opposite, in fact, of the case. So in verse 18, Jesus counsels the Laodiceans to buy true riches from him, gold refined by fire, white garments, and salve for the eyes, for healing. And Jesus here isn't just offering better versions of the world's wealth. He's offering the gifts of heaven, gifts that only God can give us through Christ. So then in verse 19, Jesus tells the Laodiceans, that he is rebuking them because he loves them. And he encourages them to repent. But how do they repent? What would it look like for the Laodiceans to repent? And that brings us to verse 20, which is where I want to spend the majority of our time. Jesus tells the Laodiceans that he is standing at the door and he's knocking. And that if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he will come into him and eat with him. So this is not just a collective knocking at the church community door in Laodicea, a collective opening of the door. He's focused down now to the individual. If any one, a singular person, if any one of the members of Laodicea hears Jesus knocking and his voice and opens the door. He will come in and eat with that one that opens the door. So now I was reading verse 20 this week, and I was struck by Jesus' turn of the phrase where he says, if anyone opens the door, he will come into him. He doesn't say, I will come into his house. He says, I will come into him. The underlying Greek 
word that's translated as come into is ace erikomai, and it literally means, wait for it, come into, <laughs> as so often is the case in reading the Bible. The underlying Greek word that is translated as erikomai is used in all sorts of places throughout the Bible and the Greek language of the New Testament. It would be very common to read that one ace erikomai into a house, into the ark, Noah ace erikomai into the ark, into a room, a city, and so forth. And it means what we'd expect it to mean, that if you ace erikomai into something, you are going into something. But when the word eserikomai is used with reference to a person, as in one person eserikomais into another person, the term conveys a particularly intimate and personal penetration of one person into the very heart and soul of another person. So for instance, the word is used to describe entering a king's throne room. So in Genesis uh, 5.1, Moses ace erikomais into Pharaoh. Or in Esther 2.16, Esther ace erikomais into King Azuerus. Moses and Esther are not just meeting the respective kings on the street. When they ace erikomai into these kings, they're entering into the king's very throne room, the seat and heart of the king's power and reign. This word eserikomai is also used with reference to a spirit, usually unclean, but it can also be angelic spirits when they enter into a person. The spirits eserikomai into a person. The spirits don't just hang out on the outside. In a deeply spiritual way, the spirits enter into the very soul of the person. So Satan eserikomai into Judas. After Jesus cast the demons out of the demoniac, the demons ace erikomide into the pigs. We can see this all throughout the Gospels. And then very frequently, ace erikomide is used, particularly in the Old Testament, but elsewhere, as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So in Genesis 29.30, we read that Jacob ace erikomide into his wife Rachel, or that in 2 Samuel 11.4, David ace erikomide into Bathsheba, and so forth and on. We can see these throughout the Old Testament. And this deeply intimate nature of the word eserikomai is why commentators often connect Revelation 3.20 back to Song of Songs 5, 1 and 2. Now, for those who don't know much about the Old Testament book, the Song of Songs, the Old Testament Song of Songs is a eight-chapter-long love poem essentially celebrating the marital love between the king and his new bride. And in the long history of the church over the years, the, the, uh, the doctors of the church and the teachers of the church have customarily read the Song of Songs as an affirmation both of the marital intimacy between a husband and wife, but even more deeply as a metaphor for the spiritual intimacy between Christ and the church. And I think that makes a lot of good sense, since Jesus often refers to himself as the heavenly bridegroom and the church as the bride, and then even more so because the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says that the marital union between a husband and a wife refers to or is a sign of 
Christ and the church. So the connection between the Song of Songs and Revelation 3 is especially intriguing in Song of Songs 5, verse 1, where the king describes his bride as a garden that he acerchomize into and whose fruit he feasts on until both he and the bride are drunk with love. I mean, it's enough to make my chaste pastoral mind blush just thinking about it, you know. And then in 5.2, we read that the bridegroom, even more telling of this connection, stands outside the garden gate of his beloved and knocks on her door, asking to be let in so he can feast with her again. All of which is to say, to ace Erechomai into another person isn't merely to greet or to approach another person. Even more deeply, it's to enter into that person's most sacred space. To enter past their walls of protection, to step into the inner sanctum sanctorum of their soul. So in Revelation 3.20, when Jesus is knocking on the door and asking to come into him, to the one that opens the door, he isn't simply asking if he can come and hang out for the afternoon and watch Sunday afternoon football. This is Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, asking to be let into the most sacred inner chamber of a person's life so that he can feast with them on love. And what he was asking of the church in Laodicea, he still asks of us today. So the question that we have before us this morning is, do we open the door? The bride, in the Song of Songs, she hesitated to open the door. She didn't until he had left. The Laodiceans have also locked the door, and they're hesitating to let Jesus in. And I think the reality is, as human beings, we are all naturally prone to hesitate to let Jesus in as well. Why do we hesitate to let Jesus in? Isn't it because of everything we've just said about Ace Erechomai? It's because we know that Jesus doesn't just want to merely greet us from the outside. He's not just swinging by to say hi. We can't open the door, chat for a little bit, and he'll move on. He wants to come into us. He wants to enter into our lives past our wall of defenses, past the outer court, past the holy place, all the way into our very own personal holy of holies, to to the seat and fount of, of our personhood. He wants to enter into the very core of our being. But ah, the core of our being, the core of our being is the most vulnerable, the most fragile, the most delicate part of who we are. And we do not make the core of our being available for public consumption. I mean, I don't care if you're the most extroverted person in the room, 
Even extroverts do not make the core of their being available for public consumption. And it's not only the most fragile part of who we are, it's also very often the most wounded part of who we are. It's the place where we have hidden our deepest shame and our guilt and our fears and our pains. Pains that are so deep we don't even speak of them. Maybe we don't even speak of them to ourselves. And if we're self-aware and honest enough, maybe we could say that we don't let anyone into that space. Maybe we don't even go in there ourselves. And as much as we like to think that Jesus is a great guy, and we do think that he's a great guy, we're too afraid of that level of intimacy. I've shared a number of times about the anxiety season of anxiety that I had at the beginning of my sabbatical. And uh, I give more details in the podcast that we put out. And I won't try to recount everything that I said in the podcast, but as I came in to uh, the sabbatical and the anxiety started, the, the trigger point for the anxiety was I had been, I'd watched a YouTube video of a man's testimony. And he talked about coming to Christ, and in coming to Christ, he uh, became estranged from his wife, he became estranged from his family, he lost his job, many of his friends. It was a very dramatic and powerful testimony about someone that had given up everything to follow Christ. And I watched that video on a Thursday morning, and for a variety of reasons I won't try to explain here, but I just had this growing sense that Jesus sort of hanging right over my shoulder. And if I looked at him, he was going to say, that's what I want from you. I want a crushingly painful amount of sacrifice from you. And this fear that Jesus was going to ask something of me that would be so painful and hard, it just, it built up and it built up until I was having anxiety attacks. So I went to my counselor, and uh, my counselor is talking to me about the peace of Christ in the midst of anxiety, and you should take your anxiety to Jesus. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. He's the cause of my anxiety. I can't be alone in the room with him. I can't even make eye contact with him, because if I look at him and he catches my eye, he's going to be like, that's what I want from you. And I became terrified of Jesus. To use the imagery from Song of Songs with our lives being like a garden. It was like I had begun to sense the presence of someone in my garden. And I had gone into the garden one moonlit night and found the gate ajar. You know those horror movies, right? Where the guy comes down in the middle of the night and finds the door open to his house. And then you know something bad is about to happen. And that feeling of dread began to build in me. I saw the, the gate was open to my garden, and I began to look around the garden at night, and there is Jesus right over my shoulder. I about jumped out of my skin. It was so scary. There he was, so close, so in my space. And I became terrified. 
My counselor asked me, he said, why is it so scary to have Jesus so close and so personal? What does that say about how you think of him? He asked me. And it became plain to me that I didn't trust Jesus nearly as much as I thought I did. It's not that I didn't love him, and it's not that I think he didn't love me. And it wasn't that I didn't trust him at all, but it became clear to me in the midst of my anxiety that I wasn't trusting him with the innermost depths of my life. I thought I was. I thought I had been, but I wasn't. And all of a sudden, he had somehow snuck past my defenses and my security. And there he was, so near, so deeply in my personal space, so right at the center of my soul. What my anxiety revealed is that I just wasn't as comfortable with Jesus' nearness as I thought I had been. And the tragic irony of my fear was that I was scared of incarnate love. I saw the dark figure of Jesus in my garden, and rather than his presence being a comfort, I feared the worst. But I didn't need to be afraid. He hadn't ace ericomide into my garden in order to harm me, but to love me. Look back in verse 20 here in our text. Jesus wants to come in. He wants to be let in so that he can feast with us. The profound and tragic irony of our fear is that when Jesus is standing at the door of our lives knocking to be let in and we shut him out, we are shutting out love. We are shutting out joy and life and happiness and hope And we're shutting out the most beautiful person in the history of history. I think all of us as human beings in this sinful world, we're torn in two. We want desperately to be loved in the most intimate and personal ways. But because of all the sin and the brokenness in the world, we're so afraid to let ourselves be loved. We're so filled with fear that if we let anyone, even Jesus into the very center of our lives, in the most tender part of our soul, they're not going to do right by us. And we simply don't trust Jesus enough to give him that level of access. We're more convinced, I think, of our frailty and our fragility than we are of his tenderness and his grace. And so we content ourselves, like the Laodiceans, to live on the surface of our lives, to focus on our material and earthly prosperity. We talk ourselves into believing that if we're safe on the outside, we must also then not need Jesus on the inside. But we do need Jesus on the inside. That's where all the deepest pains and fears are. We need him on the outside, too, of course, but he starts his renewal project in our lives on the inside because that's where our needs are most basic 
and most deep. We lose nothing when we let him into the center of our lives except our fear and our loneliness and our shame and our guilt. And I know, I know that the center of your soul is so tender and vulnerable. God made it to be tender and vulnerable. The Bible says we are like a smoldering wick, a barely flickering flame. And Jesus knows it too. And he has promised not to snuff us out. He doesn't want to come into your inner being so he can point out all of your flaws. He doesn't want access to your heart so that he can break it. He doesn't want to come into the most vulnerable part of your soul so that he can throw things around and be rough with you. He wants to step gently and tenderly into you so that he can love you, so that he can heal you. And when he offers us gold refined by fire and white garments of righteousness and healing salve for our blind eyes, what else is he offering us except himself? Jesus himself is the gift that he gives to his people. To quote St. Augustine, For as there is nothing greater or better, he has given us himself. Let's say a word to those of you, majority of you that are Christians this morning, and then I want to say a word about this to those of you that are non-Christians, and then we're going to come together and we're going to take communion together. Most of us this morning here are Christians. We've been baptized into Christ. We have confessed him as our Lord and Savior. And we've already opened the door to the Lord Jesus and we have let him in. But perhaps this morning, you can hear his voice and you can hear his knock and he is knocking on the door of your life in a fresh way. Are there places or areas of your life that you have been afraid to let him into? Perhaps it's a relationship. Perhaps it's a vocation. Perhaps it's a wound or a trauma or a fear. What do you hold to so tightly, so protectively, that you won't even let Jesus come near? What are you afraid to grieve? to release, to forgive. You don't need to self-protect from him. Answer his knock. Or perhaps, like me, you thought you had given him access to the innermost part of your life. But now you hear him knocking, you hear his voice calling to you, and he's knocking on a door in your life that you had long forgotten was there a room that you have kept locked for many years and you're afraid to open it. Don't be afraid. Jesus has come to reveal the Father's love. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. I know it's scary, but you won't regret lifting the latch. 
Let him into the deepest part of your heart and you will find that he brings a blessing and a feast of love, not judgment and condemnation. Or maybe it's your case, and this I think was so much maybe part of my story even the past five or more years. Maybe you, you want to open the door. You, you, you feel willing to open the door, but you can't figure out how to open the door. You don't know how to work the latch. You don't even know where the latch is. That's okay. And just be honest with Jesus. Just call to him through the door. He will find his way in to your garden. He'll meet you where you are. Or maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. And I know we have some that come to Calvary who are not yet believers in Christ fully. And you know that you've never opened the door to Jesus. You've listened to his teachings. You respect him. You've tried to order your life accordingly. Perhaps you even count him as a friend or a neighbor. I mean, you're here after all, so you must have some positive account or thought of Jesus in your life. But he has only ever been on the outside. You've never let him in. And today he is knocking on the door of your life and he is asking to be let in. And I would implore you to let him in. Letting Christ into your life is your only hope for this life and the life to come. Jesus is the love of God incarnate, sent by God as the only hope of a dying humanity. To open the door to his knock, this is what it means to repent. Jesus, he calls the Laodiceans to repent and the way that they repent is by opening the door. Sometimes we can think that repentance means I have to go and clean myself up. I have to go clean up the house of my life before I let Christ in. But we don't do that, right? Repentance isn't a cleanup effort on our part. It's a release and a surrender to Christ to let him into our lives so that he can clean us up. This is what it means to repent, to release control. So do you you see why he reproves you for not letting him in. To refuse to let him in is to reject the love of God. If you reject the love of God in Christ, what else can God give you? There is nothing else. He's offering you not only the best that he has, he's offering you the only thing that can save you. To reject the love of God in Christ is like a person on a sinking ship who rejects the rescue boat, like a person bitten by a venomous snake who rejects the antidote. The one thing that we need, we turn away from. Do not harm yourself in your fear of him. Repent of your fear and your self-control. He reproves you because he loves you. And because he wants to give himself to you. A thousand times over, I promise you, God promises you, you will not regret surrendering to his love. You will not regret allowing him inside. 